From the Cairo Radio Newsroom in Seattle, I'm Dave Ross, and these are the Ross Files. We are, of course, in a big discussion about uh, the use of force by police, but there's also a wider discussion as to why, and I get this from listeners all the time, uh, Dave, uh, the slaves were liberated on Juneteenth back in uh, 1865, and uh, we've had the civil rights movement in the 60s, and yet still, when we look at all the metrics, Black families are behind. Uh, How long do we wait until that's changed? And that's why I wanted to call Sean Rochester. He's written a book called The Black Tax, The Cost of Being Black in America. And you are one of the few people who's actually addressing this uh, fundamental difference between the type of um, system and economic circumstances that a white child is born into as opposed to a black child. So I wanted to, first of all, tell people um, about your own journey and uh, and how you came to look at this financial issue as the key to creating equality in America. First, uh, you know, it's great to be on with you, Dave. Um, I will try to make a long story uh, short uh, in terms of my journey. Um, I'm originally from Barbados, um, you know, went to school in you know public school systems in New York City, as well as in Barbados, uh, studied engineering in, in undergrad, uh, worked as, a, as an engineer for a while, have a business degree from Chicago Booth School of Business, did a bunch of work in corporate America in strategy, finance, mergers and acquisitions. Um, you know, and the like, and I've done things all over the world. Been very um, engaged uh, in in the black community. Uh, my wife and I are part of an organization that uh, gave over two million dollars to to black students who were, um, you know, going off to university. Um, one of the things that I wanted to do after uh, a long career was was work on issues associated with the wealth gap. Um, and I first started really thinking about how do we deal uh, with the gap in knowledge. Uh, in terms of like uh, how to handle and manage our, our limited resources to get the highest and best use out of them. Um, so I created a whole, um, you know, uh, education series based off of that uh, to help people through that transformation. And then I wanted to, to encourage uh, folks to do business with Black Enterprise uh, because I knew it was stimulative for job creation um, and for business development and attracting capital. And that was really critical to part of the solution. But it's tough to start when you tell people, hey, you should just do business with Black Enterprise because there tends to be a lot of bias associated with it. People are are viewed as a charity or as a cost in some way. So I wanted to show people, well, here's here's what the existing costs look like, right? Um, And and I started down this path of really looking at all the, the research that had been done over time where they talked about how discrimination manifests itself in certain markets uh, for black people. And it really seemed like a, a tax to me. So I started, um, you know, going down that path, looking at what those costs were um, in the present day, um, and then doing a look back um, and seeing what those things were uh, from the time of slavery uh, up until now. And it's kind of like pulling on on a loose thread on a sweater. Once you start to go down mm-hmm. that path, some really interesting things start to to manifest. So a typical email or message I might get is, uh, Dave, I'm a white person, but I wasn't born into 
into wealth. And uh, or my parents come over here from from a European country with nothing in their pockets and they built up this fantastic business, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, black people were emancipated many years ago. Yeah. And yet for some reason, they can't keep their families together. They can't build uh, substantial businesses. Yeah. And they're always asking the government for uh, for help. So. I know it's a, it's a long story. I mean, I listened to one of your your talks, and it takes about an hour to go through all this history. But is is there a um, is there a shorthand way you can address why this disparity is so stubborn? Yeah. So, um, you know, I try to look at why is it that after all this time, black people only own about two percent of U.S. wealth, right? Uh, yeah. Which is driving a lot of these socioeconomic problems that that we're seeing right now. And while we all may come from from different communities, right, or different school districts with different levels of resources, the curriculum is pretty much the same. And the curriculum doesn't have all this information in it, right? So all people hear is what they're exposed to by media or kind of, you know, what they see in, on, you know, on, on the television. So the short version is uh, for about a 246-year period, you, you have labor extracted from black people under conditions in which they're not able to accumulate any wealth because they literally are the capital, right? And they, they are the wealth. Um, and the wealth that was extracted from them during that period of time has been estimated, you know, as high as $50 uh, trillion. And, and just to help people understand, like, you know, the, the value of enslaved people to to um, to America, if you go back to 1860, you know, they're 50 percent of the full economic value of the South. Right. Just those four million mm-hmm. people, they're generating uh, about 61 percent of U.S. exports is that raw cotton. Um, they're 80 percent of the global cotton market is dominated by the U.S., the free labor from from these people. Raw cotton is kind of like the oil market. It was the first, you know, globalized market. Um, and industrialization really happened on the backs of, of um, the kind of the textile industry. So it, it's a massive portion. And it's so large to value those people that you have to measure it in terms of like national wealth or GDP. And just to give you some quick numbers on it, right? If you look at it from a national wealth perspective, those people were somewhere between 16 and 20 percent of U.S. wealth. So if you look at pre-COVID, national wealth was about 85 trillion. So if you put that in today's dollars, that's somewhere between 14 and 17 trillion or about 15.5 if you took an average of those things. The other way economists look at it is from a perspective of national income. So their value was one to two years of national income or GDP. So if you looked at what those numbers were pre-COVID, it was about 19 trillion a year. So you're talking somewhere between 19 and 38 trillion. Take an average here at 28.5. That's that's two different. And so this is like a this is a gift to the American economy, basically. Absolutely, there is there's no way to disaggregate black people and the the value that was extracted from their labor um, from the development of of the country. It, one does not exist without the other. Okay, so slavery ends, except as you point out, slavery doesn't end. So right. explain that. Yeah. So you, 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 the first thing we, we have to kind of understand is, is uh, that these people leave bondage with no economic resources. Right. We hear about the 40 acres and a mule, but that actually never happens. 
And if you think about how you would price that, it would be about a trillion dollars in today's equivalent. If you took, you know, 40 acres times 4 million people, 160 million acres, and you just looked at farmland, you kind of come up with that, that kind of number. They leave with no economic resources. And there's a short period of reconstruction that we hear a lot of conversation about, but they're plunged very quickly into this Jim Crow structure. Um, and this Jim Crow structure is really a reimposition of 100% tax on, on black people's labor, which is what... It's state- not just an expression of prejudice. And this is the, the important concept to me. The, the Jim Crow laws were not just there to uh, to express the hatred of black people, but they were there to literally reimpose slavery. So explain how that worked. Yeah. So slavery, by definition, is a 100% tax on, on your labor, right? It just means nothing that you produce is yours, right? And in effect, yeah. you know, nothing, you are not yours. So when, when you go into this Jim Crow system, it's effectively a contract, right? So those large mega plantations are broken into smaller lots. Black families settle on those lots and they agree to plant cash crops under the terms and conditions of a contract that's all set by the small white farmer. But the problem is because they have no wealth, all of the supplies that they need, food, clothing, tools, everything has to be supplied by that white farmer at rates up to 75, 70% a year. So they set your whole cost structure. And then at the end of the season, when you take those crops to market, that white farmer is the market. They actually tell you what it's worth. So a person sets your cost structure and they also set your revenue. By definition, they set your profit. So if you're lucky, your profit will net to zero. And if you're unfortunate, it'll be negative and it'll roll it into the next year. And then you have perpetual debt servitude. So that's how you get into the situation of having 100 percent tax on your labor. But it's across millions of people for well over a 75 year uh, period. Okay, so the gift of the economy continues and this system continues until 1945, right? Yep. So and and then and, and during that you, you have the maldistribution of resources into education or what they call now human capital development, right? So you're you're also dealing with that because what what you want at that time is massive, cheap, abundant labor, right? What what you do not want is is a highly educated labor force, uh, because it's been predetermined that they should be doing and focusing on providing free or next to free labor. Right. Okay, so 1945 comes, and uh, World War II changes everything, and we start a a civil rights movement, uh, finally culminating in the the Voting Rights Act. And uh, so segregation is officially ended. But then, of course, segregation uh, still continues. At at what point – but but a black middle class does develop at some point, right? Uh, It it is developing. It It is very small, right? Um, you, you have a number of challenges. So if you go back to like the, the Great Depression, right, you, you, you have a massive infusion of capital into the American public via uh, the New Deal, right, um, mm-hmm. where they set, you know, uh, you know, average hours per day, per week. You're able to organize labor. You, you get uh, old age insurance, otherwise known as Social Security. There's lots of investment put into uh, to, to farming, less than 2% of any of those resources go to black people, right? As a matter of fact, to even get that passed in, in Congress, it required two exclusions. One, that you eliminate uh, or you exclude domestic workers and you exclude agricultural workers. That's 70% plus of what you know black people were doing at the time. And then the second part but was that it was distributed locally, right? So within state 
which allowed people to maximize the level of discrimination, right? To effectively bar black people from, from pursuing that. Even when you get into the GI Bill, right? Which is a wonderful, enormous investment in uh, 16 million soldiers that have fought in World War II and that were coming home as a terrific thing. Less than 2% of that went, went to black people, right? Um, and there were a million black soldiers, you know, that, that fought in, in, in World War II. So these massive investments into, you know, job training, into, you know, housing, black people are effectively barred from. And just to put like a fine point on that, if, if you think about the period, you know, 1930 to 1960, less than 1% of all mortgages in the United States go to black Americans. Right. So even though Jim Crow officially ends in 1945, this system continues in another form. And then comes the, uh, do we do we mark the beginning of this whole prison pipeline from the war on drugs? Or, I mean, we now get into the, the exception clause in the 13th Amendment, which says that slavery is illegal unless you have a criminal record. Right. So, so that's, that's uh, allowing uh, convict leasing, right? That, uh, that's, yeah. that's happening for, for the entirety, right, of, of that Jim Crow period. Um, you know, one of the greatest, uh, you know, occupations, right, that, that you could be in if you were black um, was to be a school teacher. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you go to like, you know, 1954, where you have Brown v. Board of Education, uh, you had about 82,000 uh, school teachers, right? And it represented a, a, about, you know, 50% of the black middle class. It was a terrific, amazing gift, right? To be in a family where you had a, 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 a teacher, right? That was uh, was in the family. Well, within 10 years after that decision, about 40,000, almost 50% of those teachers were eliminated. They were fired, summarily dismissed. And about 90% of 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 Black uh, principals and administrators who were men uh, were were also summarily dismissed over that ten year period. So you have a massive shock to this to this middle class that 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 we're talking about. So it's extremely difficult to to accumulate wealth, you know, under these circumstances. And then as you get into the the issues associated with um, you know the, the war on crime, you have a number of things happening, right? You start to have the process of manufacturing moving out of the cities right and then eventually offshore um you you have the corralling of black people over decades who were fleeing the south being corralled into these you know urban you know ghetto communities right that they were called um and under the conditions where the rents are even higher inside of these areas and they are outside of the areas the goods and services are, are three times as higher, right, inside of these areas and outside of these areas. And much of the commerce that's taking place is done under kind of predatory lending context. So, again, extremely difficult to, to accumulate wealth, you know, under under these circumstances. Right. So that's the redlining period, which you've all become familiar with. So, again, we don't see slavery end. We sort of see it evolve. I guess one of the questions then is, where is the actual starting line where there was a chance for black families to start to acquire wealth? We know it wasn't the Emancipation Proclamation now. We know it wasn't the end of Jim Crow. It wasn't even the end of uh, World War World War II. So when was the starting line? So I, I, I would view it as there's there's always been a very small portion of the black community that was able to accumulate wealth under the most exasperating uh, conditions, right? Mm -hmm. But it was a very small uh, population. So the issue is that 
population starts to grow in size. So um, when you start to get into uh, post-civil rights and uh, the reduction of explicit discrimination, there are more people who are able to uh, get into you know universities that they otherwise couldn't get into, right? There are more people who could have who could start working uh, in corporations, major corporations, uh, where they didn't have those opportunities before. So, so when you start looking in that you know top five or so percent of of black wealth, you you start to see that there's been growth, right? Post uh, post civil rights. Uh, but when you look at the vast majority of the population, it, it's not there. And to be even more specific, if, if you look, you know, at like the 50th percentile, right, of um, of black earners, um, they've actually gone down by about 30 percent, right, on a relative basis. If you look at the 75th percentile, they've held constant, right, since the 60s. It's only the 90th percentile that has improved relative to their white peer, right? So yeah, so you're saying that uh, you're saying that Russell Wilson, Oprah Winfrey, and Tyler Perry are not indicative of what's happened to the mass of black people in America. Absolutely, those folks are outliers by far. Okay, so that brings us to the to the present time. Um, you are the CEO of what's called Good Steward. This is a financial education and advisor company. So you provide financial advice to uh, black people. So. Tell me exactly how you've decided to to spend your time to fix this. So there, there, there are a number of things that uh, that we do. One is is just providing um, you know coaching and education on what we call personal financial management, right? Which is how do you manage the limited resources that you have to their highest and best use to drive cash flow, to maximize ownership, and to ha- increase your projected you know uh, assets at, at retirement. Um, and, and there's a certain, you know, tranche of the population that actually has the ability to accumulate, um, you know, significant resources if they had access to information that they otherwise wouldn't. Right. They don't have the balance sheet or the, the liquid cash to be able to attract, you know, uh, more expensive uh, advice. So they're kind of stuck um, in, in a difficult position. So we try to help those those folks and we have you know significant transformative impacts. The other things that, that we try to do is, is to help ensure that there's more black enterprise as part of supply chain uh, with corporations and governments and institutions, as well as increasing uh, the presence and participation of you know, black employees on payrolls across you know, governments, uh, institutions and, and, um, and corporations. And, and this is incredibly important because it's stimulative to, to job creation and for the flow of resources through the black community. The third piece of it is making sure that there's actually access to capital, uh, liquidity to actually finance these things. Um, and we have a, a gap in jobs, we have a gap in businesses and a massive gap in capital um, you know, across the black community because of this history. Um, and, the, and those are the things that, that we're trying to address. Okay, it is illegal now, though, for banks to discriminate based on race, uh, and yet you you certainly hear even now uh, black entrepreneurs saying, "I can't get a loan." So I want to know: is there help for people like that? Is there help for people who are in that situation? Um, there it, it depends on the situation that that you're in. I mean, if if you are a black business, on average, uh, you're obviously far more likely to be denied, even if you have the same amount of credit or, or credit worthiness 
uh, cash flow, et cetera, as your white peer. And, and why is that? You can't just say, I'm not giving you a loan because you're black, right? Yeah. So that's a really great question. So uh, let, let's, let's talk about that a little bit. You know, part of what I talk about in the book to help people kind of understand what's actually happening is the levels of anti-black bias that actually exist in the population, right? And, and the bias takes two mode. It's conscious bias and unconscious bias. So if you, if you look at the, the data, right, it says that explicit bias, like people know exactly what they're doing, is about 50% across the, the population. Um, and unconscious bias is about, you know, uh, 56%, almost 6 in 10. If you look at the work that's been done by, you know, Harvard, they have an online uh, implicit association test where they measure unconscious racial bias. Right, right? millions that. of people have have taken that test. You're, we're talking about seven in ten people having unconscious, you know, anti-black bias. What they call it is automatic white preference. So what we are seeing is the manifestation of that bias in many different ways. Right. So the, the higher rates uh, that a black business would, would see on average, which is 100 basis points higher, which is a significant, meaningful increase in cost of capital that's emanating from bias. Right now, we don't know if I don't know. Right. If it's conscious or unconscious. But what we can do is see the effect of it. Right. And that shows yeah. up in policing. It shows up in you know, capital raising. It shows up in. Uh, the job search, it shows up in promotion, how work product is evaluated, so on and so forth. It's the same level of bias uh, that's showing up in many different ways. Okay, so what about black-owned banks? There have been, there are some black-owned banks, right? And I know that there are attempts of, at setting up community banks as well. Is there any indication that that is, uh, that that is working? So uh, there are about, about 19 or so black-owned banks. I, I think there are roughly... $4.7 billion or so um, in, in Black-owned banks. It's an incredibly small amount. You're, we're talking about yeah. $4 out of every $10,000 in a U.S. banking system, right? Uh, there used to be you know, significantly more. I think at one point it was over 100 of them. They've been dwindling. And the vast majority of, of resources in general and Black resources in particular are not in these banks. So they don't have the ability to provide the liquidity that black businesses and black people need to provide that extra shield of kind of non-discriminatory lending, right? So being able to to have more uh, deposits in those banks is really critical and also more investment in the banks, right? So that they can uh, upgrade their infrastructure. So is there any solution to this other than to adopt some sort of reparations plan that puts that that restores to black families the trillions of dollars of wealth that has been uh, gifted to this country over the years. Yeah, reparations is certainly critical because the the the, the magnitude of the gap is is so massive. Right, we're in the many many trillions. Uh, one of the things that I talk about in the book is an economic framework that I call PhD, right? Because we've got these gaps in terms of jobs, business, and capital in the black community. And let me be real specific on those. So Pre-COVID, we're missing about 6 million jobs in the black community. We're missing about 1.4 million businesses with employees. So these are the larger businesses, right? Now, only 4% of black businesses have any employees, but they generate about 70% of revenue. 
There's only 109,000 or so of them. We're missing 1.4 million of those, right? And so it's how do we take actions and deploy resources and energy in ways that create jobs and businesses and provide capital? And that's what this PhD framework is about. It's about purchasing, hiring, and depositing in ways that are stimulative for job creation, business development, and providing liquidity. So when it comes to individuals, that's how we spend our money, right? So we can you know, uh, choose to use a black lawyer or accountant or, uh, you know, car dealer or real estate agent Mm -hmm. or any of these things, these type of jobs will never be outsourced. If it's an institution or a company or government, that's the supply chain spend, right? And less than 2% of all government supply chain spend and corporate supply chain spend goes to black enterprise. And then of course there is, you know, are we providing uh, liquidity capital in with black institutions or other organizations that that provide credit in in our community. So it's always thinking about, you know, are we creating jobs, businesses, and and providing capital? That's those things we can do as individuals. Those are things that uh, you know companies absolutely need to be doing. Universities um, and and governments, right, as well. And it and it's a framework to measure the impact or the efficacy of a program. So if it's not creating jobs, if it's not creating or expanding business and not providing liquidity, it's really not helpful. It's more of a shiny object, right? It's more symbolic uh, than, than anything else. And then you start to move into some much larger infrastructure things that, that, that need to be done, right? For, for example, you know, we're, we're not going to be able to start up or grow our way out of this deficit. There's going to have to be acquisitions uh, that take place within the supply chain to facilitate that. You're going to have to have the capital that's available uh, for that. You're also going to need to stimulate demand for for businesses to do more business with with uh, with black enterprise because you know anti-black bias is is a real uh, thing. We're going to have to to ensure that that more investment is being made at the university level, right? So we have you know more young people that are graduating with the skill sets that. Um, that are that are necessary and, and, a, and a similar investment at the K through 12 level because I think as we all know um, you know our, our young people are not graduating with the skill sets that are necessary right for the jobs of today and, and certainly not the jobs of 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 tomorrow so there's a broader structural play that needs to happen right and incentives uh, that that need to be put in place to help facilitate that that could create millions of jobs. Uh, but even without all of that being done, we can choose how we want to deploy our own resources as part of our companies, our organizations, our governments, our universities, and our own P&Ls that can be very stimulative for, for job creation and business development within the black community. Okay, so what you're saying is that one thing white allies can do is instead of just marching in demonstrations with black people, is to uh, purchase from black businesses, hire black employees, deposit money in uh, in black institutions. Those things, isn't that what um, state and government minority contracting requirements were designed to do? Yeah, I think. Why isn't that working? Yeah, I think there's a difference between um, design and intention and outcomes, right? So uh, part of the problem is is that a lot of of these programs are kind of women and minority programs, right? Right. And and they they rarely ever report on the actual business being done with Black enterprise, right? So there are many people who face discrimination, but the intensity of that discrimination, right, and the rate at which it falls is substantially different for each group, right? And the most intense and resistant form of it 
is is, is anti-black uh, discrimination. Mm-hmm. So we assume when you talk about uh, helping a minority enterprise, we're talking about helping black enterprise. You say that's far from true. Absolutely. So I, I say minority doesn't mean black, right? And and in people's minds, that's what they assume. Um, so if you look at you know you know women enterprises that have employees, the larger ones. It's about $1.2 trillion of, of spend. If you ask yourself how much of that is from black women, it's about 2%, right? So as you are investing in, in, in women, every $100 you put in, it's not until your $99 that a black female would actually be seeing the economic benefit associated with it. So you need to be specific. If, if you look at investing in, in Latino businesses, which we should all do all of these things, and they're doing about $380 billion, Right. But if you ask how many of those are black Latinos, again, it's just two percent. So you have the same phenomena. And then if you ask the same question about, um, you know, our Asian brothers and sisters, they're doing about six hundred and twenty eight, six hundred thirty billion dollars. There's no black people in there by definition. So that entire group of non-white male, only about four percent of that is actually black. Right. So you can be mm-hmm. hitting all the right metrics. You can be really, you know, 30 percent growth, 40 percent growth, 100 percent growth. Your diversity programs are are wonderfully successful at a high level. But when it looks at black enterprise, you're, you're at extremely small percentages, usually less than two percent um, in many major cities. It's just one percent. So you're saying this idea that black companies have a leg up when it comes to government contracting is complete fiction. Uh, yeah, it's not substantiated by the data in any way, shape, or form. Hmm. Okay. Tell me then the difference between the black person who comes here directly from uh, an African country or, you know, from, from uh, Barbados, where you yep. come from, and the black person who is who is descended from a long line of family members who go back to the days of slavery. Yeah, I, I mean, there, there are a number of differences, but one of the things is generally people who are able to um, you know, immigrate to, to the United States are, are, are typically um, sometimes not representative of the average group from where they come from, right? Because mm-hmm. it's expensive to come here. You might be well-educated or you might you know, come from means, kind of so on and so forth, right? Um, so you're 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 coming and you might be in a better position, you know, once you get here. But one of the, the, the critical differences is you've not been through 153 years, right, of denial. That that same energy, that same passion that immigrants from anywhere have, right? Uh, black people who were leaving bondage had that energy by far. But you could not pursue the the American dream. You could be killed for starting a business, right? Your level of intelligence had no bearing on whether or not you could attend a school. No, no one tells these immigrants of, of any sort of kind, hey, you can't start that business. You can't go to that university. You can't develop your skill level. By the way, upon the pain of death in public, in front of everyone, and no one will be prosecuted, and we're going to hold that in place for, for 75 years, so you start to see what the challenges um, you know, are, are like. And very often, a lot of people who, who come to the U.S., they have no idea about that history. They just think it's the land of you know, milk and honey, and, and anybody can and kind of move forward. And then the, the legacy of, of you know, slavery and post-slavery is a disproportionate lack of of access to resources within uh, the black community. So, 
you know, skill and talent and, and, uh, and uh, capability, all that stuff follows what they call a normal distribution. You know, 70% of people in the middle, 15%, you know, really high, 15%, you know, kind of on the mm -hmm. low side. The issue is, are you able to develop your capabilities to their fullest and that is directly proportional to the wealth and and, and resources that you have access to uh, and when you look at you know black uh, americans they're 10 times more likely to be exposed to poverty than, than their white peers right and certainly than uh immigrants who are, who are coming from you know other countries who on average uh, may have more resources right um than others as they start and poverty tends to smother talent. I think there are studies also showing that the the neighborhood that you you grow up in, uh, if it's full of violence, for example, if that's a standard feature of your neighborhood, there's basically PTSD that follows you through life. Yes, you know there, there's a number of things with poverty. One of the statistics is that if you come from a community that has a, you know high level of poverty. You're 10 times, you're, you're 99 times less likely, 99% less likely, right, to graduate with a four-year degree than if you come from a community uh, with resources. Um, that's one out of 100, right? I mean, that, 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 is, that is draconian, and that requires a massive change. The other thing is that communities with high levels, right, of, of, of poverty, um, you know, there's a stress that's associated with that that is acting on our physiology, Right. And normally we, you, it's like, you know, fight or flight, but you're in fight or flight all the time. Right. And, and what that does actually for anyone kind of in those situations, it, it affects your executive functioning. Right. It, mm -hmm. it affects your uh, your your ability to to kind of process, to organize, self-control, all these kind of things, which are actually really critical. Right. To uh, developing and excelling, um, you know, in, in school. Right. So and so not only do you have to get people out of those environments, but you also have to treat um, the 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 ailments or the issues that those environments cause. Does knowing that you are descended from slaves have an effect? In other words, uh, you have uh, two people, same family history. One person knows their history. One person does not know their history. Uh, does that make a difference? That, that is an interesting question. So I'm going to answer that in a couple of different ways, right? Um, so there, there, there's research that's been done that says like the, the level of anti-Black bias is so strong and so intense, right? That if you tell a child who's Black that they're Black before they take a test, they'll do less well, right? Hmm. Because of the level, if you, if you think about the media, if you think about what is communicated on an almost constant basis about, you know, who black people are and, and achievement, all that kind of things, it's, it's quite negative. So that certainly is there, right? Um, but if you have an understanding of, of your history, and black history is way beyond uh, slavery, right, the last 500 years, um, it, 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 it actually fortifies you, Right. Um, because mm -hmm. you understand where you come from and you understand the contributions that have been made and you understand the context of what was, what was done to you, right? There, there's a lot of, for example, tends to be a lot of shame in, in classes when people start talking about the period of, of slavery, right, for the black child in, in the class when everybody kind of looks at them. Uh, oh. but, if you, but if you, you know, have been taught well, you, you understand that your ancestor did nothing wrong. Right. There is zero shame that, that you should have. As a matter right. of fact, shame should be in someone else's corner. Right. So um, that context matters uh, greatly. 
right? If you're fortified with an understanding of, of yourself and the longitudinal contributions that, that you and your people have made. So are schools teaching this the right way or not? Uh, no, they're teaching it uh, largely by absentia, right? They're, they're not discussing it, right? You, you, uh, there's no conversation about the economic costs, right, of, of slavery. History is taught in ways where it was an unfortunate period. They call it, you know, an ugly sin. These are words that give no context whatsoever. They make it seem like it, it came to an end, which means it stopped and it, and it didn't, right? Um, it just kind of shifted form. They explain kind of, you know, Jim Crow as if it's just a period of poverty or peasant farming, as opposed to a diabolically efficient mechanism to strip you of all of your, um, you know, labor. Uh, over extended period of time and what that did and meant for, for the country, it's kind of taught out of context, right? And, and you don't see it in K through 12 and you don't see it in, in university unless you're in some really specialized classes that are dealing with a slice of it. You absolutely don't get the, the continuum. So it sounds like we are, <laughs> America as a country is, is nowhere near doing what needs to be done to even begin to equalize uh, this gap. Is now, you, you are a, a supporter of reparations, is that correct? That's correct. And what form would that take? An outright federal grant or a, a tax on everybody above a certain, you know, uh, amount of wealth? Or what would it be? Um, I'm, that's a difficult question uh, to, to answer because I'm giving that a lot, a lot of thought. It's not a simple question, right? Yeah. Uh, so let me, let me give you, like, a, a, an example, right? Um, let's say it was a cash payment right? Simplest kind of form. Well, you know, right now, uh, you know, black people, about 90, only about 2% of, of the total spend of black people in America actually goes to black enterprise, right? Because the business infrastructure, because of this 150-year trauma post-slavery and, in, you know, uh, during the time of slavery, was never allowed to fully develop. It's really a fraction of what it should be. Right. So we don't have the business infrastructure for, for black Americans to uh, spend through that will be in itself stimulative within the community. Right. You know, if, if you did that, it would be the greatest economic stimulus that the world ha has ever seen, because most of the things that, that black people would need to purchase and consume, we don't we don't necessarily own. Right. You would buy houses that weren't built right by by um, by black labor. Right. That were the resources didn't come from, you know, black uh, companies. You buy cars that are that are not owned by um you know, black, you know, manufacturers, there are black auto dealers, but they're tiny, 264 out of 16,000 pre-COVID, right? So you, you, you would have a, a tremendous amount of consumption, which would be fantastic. Uh, you would have significant savings by certain parts of the group, which would be terrific, but we would lose the multiplier effect of actually stimulating more jobs within the community, right? right. So I think there really needs to be a business infrastructure in place uh, to, to do that. Uh, one of the things I, I think people need to really understand is that, the, you know, the, you know, it, helping to develop uh, black enterprise and, and black people and black intellect is actually a gigantic win for the country. Right. So when you think about what the country is losing. Right. My analysis says that uh, having excluded black talent 
right, from the innovation system is costing the country about $2 trillion a year. If you look at McKinsey and company, their analysis says that if you could close the wealth gap, it would stimulate about $1.5 trillion, right, of GDP mm-hmm. growth. You know, so you're saying that reparations might pay for themselves? Yeah. Yeah. You'd have to calculate the, the return period. But yeah, everybody benefits. Nobody's made that argument that I've heard about. Any Anytime reparations comes up, it is presented as either a tax on people or you're actually taking something from somebody and just giving it to somebody else. But um, you're making a point I've never heard made before. I, I heard it made with women. How for years and years we wasted the talents of half the population yep. because women didn't have a, yep. a chance. Absolutely. But it's never been made with black people that you have the same distribution of talent among uh, blacks as among anybody else. And yet for years that has been systematically, essentially, wasted. Absolutely. And, and here's a, another quick thing, right, that most people don't think about, right? So – you know, in, in most instances where you have the abolition of slavery, you have the, the reparation of the slave owner, right? Yeah. So the British, the taxpayers did it, right? In the French's case, they imposed it upon uh, the newly free people in Haiti and then had a, a, a dual system of tax imposition and having the newly free people pay for it, right? In essence, uh, that was paid for during the Jim Crow period, right? By By massive amounts of virtually free labor by millions of people over a 75-year period, right? That did not accrue to those people, right? That accrued to Southern landowners, right? And and that, so that, that, it's already been paid in one direction. Yeah. Reparations were paid to Southern landowners. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that's never discussed or rarely discussed. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you very much for spending the time to explain this. I, um, I I wanted to take some time because uh, I attempt to answer these these uh, emails when they come in, but it's uh, it's very difficult to convince people that it is still not a level playing field because the assumption seems to be that a switch was flipped when Abraham Lincoln signed that document, or at the very least when um, when the Civil Rights Act was passed. And that anybody who hasn't been able to thrive since then has only themselves to blame. Absolutely. And that appears that appears not to be the case. Yeah, it is absolutely not the case. And and, and the thing is that, you know, it's not hard to come to that conclusion if you have no understanding, because all the messaging is telling you that you're right. Right. And then when you're in school, it's all left out of the curriculum. So you, you don't have a counterbalance. Uh, to that level of thinking, and you're getting all this other information. And if you don't have that information, you don't have context, you're going to blame the individual without looking at the context of the environment in which those individuals are functioning. If you put anybody in a situation in which, you know, Black people are in, you're, you're not going to be able to accumulate wealth, right? This was an elegant, diabolically efficient uh, design, right? It was not accidental, right? By by any means, and it was extremely effective. Mm. Sean Rochester is the CEO of Good Steward. It's a financial education and advisor company, and is the author of the Black Tax. If you uh, Google Sean Rochester, S H A W N, and uh, Black Tax, you'll you'll find him all over the internet. Sean, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. 
Remember that when there's a longer version of the interviews on Seattle's Morning News, you can usually find it right here in the original form, unconstrained by the limitations of a live broadcast. And you can subscribe so that when someone says, did you hear what was on Seattle's Morning News, you can say, not only that, I heard the part that wasn't on Seattle's Morning News. So my advice is to subscribe. And then when we talk to an author, a politician, an entrepreneur, an artist, a scientist, a teacher, a journalist, a celebrity, you'll hear every word. I'm Dave Ross. Thanks for tuning in. 